We are moving toward the completion of our Scent series, and over the next uh, three weeks, we are going to be studying Acts chapter 21 through 26. Uh, we're going to be taking in some very large uh, portions of God's Word uh, as we continue uh, to learn how God is sending us out as His people to do His mission uh, in our world. And in these six chapters, uh, we, we come to a section, I just want to let you know, that many people find to be confusing and even a little boring. In fact, one of the most solid commentaries on Acts says this, this long section of Acts could be considered the most tedious portion of the whole book. It consists of seemingly endless legal scenes and has more than its share of speeches. That Luke considered this material of vital importance, however, is indicated by the fact that these chapters constitute the fulfillment of the divine promise given to Paul at the time of his conversion, that he would bear the Lord's name before Gentiles, kings, and the people of Israel. Luke sees these chapters as very, very important in his narrative, and I think once we work through them, we will understand why. Uh, today, we're, we're going to be talking about playing defense. Now, this past week, as I have been watching the NBA playoffs and wondering sometimes if the Warriors were ever going to start playing some defense, um, I was reminded of the perennial argument that uh, happens for sports fans of all sports, and it's this, what is more important, offense or defense? Some people like to say, well, offense wins games, but defense wins championships, now, that's what this me message is not about today, and we're not going to resolve this question today. But up to this point in the book of Acts, Paul has mostly been playing offense. If you look at Acts 13 through 20, that period covers about a decade of time. And during this time, Paul has been on three missionary journeys. He's been intentionally engaging strategic cities all across the Roman Empire, taking the gospel to unreached people in unreached places. And that's typically what evangelism is about, being on offense, taking the initiative, uh, initiating conversations, engaging people that don't know Jesus, taking the gospel to people who haven't heard it before. And what we're going to see starting today is this transition, this switch. Paul, in Acts 21, begins to play defense, and he's going to be playing defense for the rest of this book of Acts. In Acts 21 through 26, Paul gives five defense speeches. And we're just going to see that he is now being forced to react to opposition and attack. Earlier, under the leadership of the Spirit, he was initiating. He was going uh, where he wanted to go. But now, he's going to be a prisoner. Now, he's going to be under the control of sometimes hostile authorities. Now, Paul gives these five defenses of the faith in different contexts. So here's kind of the list of them so you can be aware of them. First, he's going to give a defense in front of a Jewish crowd. Next, there will be one in front of a Jewish council. And then he's going to go before the Roman governor, Felix. And then after that, the Roman governor, Festus. Finally, he's going to stand before King Agrippa. Now, we use the word defense about these speeches because that's the actual word that Luke himself uses about them. But I want you to understand this is not at all in any way about being defensive. Uh, this is a proactive, positive proclamation of the gospel that Paul is giving, and he does this again and again and again in these chapters. 
I also want you to be aware of this, something that's very easy to miss as we're reading these words. For us today, sitting here in church in our nice, comfortable chairs, it's very easy to miss what's really going on. It's very easy for you and I to miss the danger that Paul is in all through these chapters. Paul could be killed at almost any moment. He's constantly in danger in these chapters. He doesn't know what's going to happen. We do. We've read the end of the book of Acts. But Paul hasn't gotten there yet. And it is like in these chapters, just one man, just Paul, this little guy. You know, I've said he's kind of like Danny DeVito. Just one guy, all alone, standing in front of, staring down uh, the powers of his world, the Roman Empire, the Jewish leadership. The question that is crucial in these chapters that's confronting us is how do we defend our faith in our world today? You know, we live in a world that's obviously very different than Paul's world, but there's a lot of things that haven't changed. Paul faced a hostile crowd. We face, in our secular culture, an increasingly skeptical and sometimes increasingly hostile uh, attitude toward Christians and what we believe. Paul faced corrupt religious and government leaders. We live in a time today where we can no longer assume that the government always has our best interests as Christians in mind. And it can be easy for us to feel overwhelmed as we just look at the world around us. It can be easy for us to feel uh, overwhelmed and therefore to be defensive toward our culture, therefore for us to withdraw, to, to try to conserve and protect what we think we have. And that's not what Paul does. In Acts 21 to 26, we're going to see again and again and again, Paul is boldly defending the gospel. If you could Think of it this way. I would say Paul is being offensively defensive. And we're going to see him trusting in God and and in God's faithfulness as he defends the faith. Now, if you've noticed looking at your notes, we are going to be covering a lot of territory today, almost two and a half chapters. And so, as I like to say, it's going to be up to you guys to listen quickly. And I'm not really confident that you're going to be able to do it. So uh, we're going to see, okay, how quickly you can listen Uh, We're going to be flying over some parts of these passages. We're going to dive down into some other ones. But as we do along the way, I'm going to be pointing out three ways that we uh, today can play defense like Paul. Here's the first one. You can go ahead and write it down. Uh, Stay humble and flexible when misunderstood. Now, this is Acts 21, verses 1 through 26. And, And as Acts 21 opens, Paul's ultimate goal is to get to Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. But first, he wants to go to Jerusalem. Now, we've been reading about this, that he is on this mission. He is taking an offering that he has been collecting from the Gentile churches to the poverty-stricken Jewish believers in Jerusalem. He's just longing for this unity to develop between these two parts of the church, the Jewish and the Gentile parts. And so verses 1 through 16 uh, recounts Paul's travels back to Jerusalem with the gift. And if you read these verses, you'll notice that two different times he stops along the way. He visits with believers, and these believers warn him that danger's ahead, that he's going to suffer, that he's going to be imprisoned. And each time Paul says, I don't care. Each time Paul says, I'm ready to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. He he presses ahead because he's burdened uh, to deliver his gift. And that's where we meet him in verse 17. Verse 17 says, When we arrived in Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. 
Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. I want you to stop right there. Just put yourself in that room. Just imagine, wouldn't it have been awesome to be there and hear the stories that Paul would tell? Imagine him telling about how Sergius Paulus came to know Jesus. Imagine him talking about meeting Lydia down by the riverside. Imagine the story of the Philippian jailer and the earthquake and the chains, and he's about to kill himself. Imagine him talking about Crispus and on and on and on. Verse 20 says, when they heard this, they praised God. I mean, it's like a celebration. How could you not? And I I think we can assume that at some point during this celebrating Paul and his team must have presented the gift that they were bringing, this love offering to the Jerusalem church. And we know from reading the the accounts that Paul had two purposes. He wanted to help the poor in the Jerusalem church, and he wanted to deepen the unity between these two parts of Jesus' body. But very quickly, right here, this kind of subtle shift takes place, and things get more serious. Despite all of Paul's work, to raise and to bring this generous gift, there are some Jewish believers in Jerusalem who are suspicious of him. Uh, This is what it says. Then they, that's James and the leaders, said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. Now, that was not true. Paul never did that. He valued his Jewish heritage. Paul did not object ever uh, to any Jewish customs as long as they did not compromise the gospel and as long as they weren't placed onto as burdens to Gentile converts. But this suspicion is there. And so in verses 22 to 25, uh, James makes a proposal. He says... To show that you, Paul, respect your traditional Jewish Christianity, I want to request that you do something. I want to ask you to participate with these four brothers, these believers who are involved in what we would call from the Old Testament a Nazarite vow. Now, I won't go into the details of this today, but this was a, a time of dedication, and it was, it was done in, in several ways. Uh, one of them, the most uh, conspicuous, was that the believers who did this would not cut their hair. They would just let their hair grow long, and then at the end of their period of this time of vow and dedication, they would shave their heads, they would collect the hair, they would take it to the temple, and it would be burned as an offering. I'm kind of looking around. It sort of looks like some of you may have done this vow. I don't know. Um, But James says you can participate in this. He's kind of coming in on the end of this vow, and he says part of what you can do is you can pay for the sacrifices. Another thing that happened at the end of this vow is uh, the, Na- the person making the Nazarite vow would bring these animal sacrifices and offer them as part of his dedication. It was a very expensive thing to do to purchase these animals. And so it would be a very generous gesture for Paul uh, to make. This would show that Paul has not walked away from his heritage, that he respected uh, these traditional Jewish expressions of worship. And it also, we should know, this would not be any kind of a violation of the gospel of grace. This is not about a salvation. What we see here is Paul just acting in line with what he is going to write in 1 Corinthians 9, 20 to 23. His practice of becoming all things to all people 
so that through that he might win some for the sake of the gospel. See, Paul is keeping the gospel central here while remaining humble, while remaining flexible, just doing everything he can to preserve unity. And we can learn from this. Paul could have said, and there would be some of us in a situation like this who might react like this. Paul could have said, you know, let the haters hate. I'm just going to do what I want to do. I'm free in Christ. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul's just living out his words to the Jews. I uh, became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law so that I can win those who are under the law. Paul was willing to do anything for the sake of the gospel as long as it wasn't compromising the gospel. He just wanted to help anyone he could, Jew or Gentile, to know and love Jesus. And so he was not going to let any culture get in the way of that. He was not going to demand his way. He was not going to allow his preferences for how he liked to do things, which may be the most applicable thing for us today. He's not going to let preferences get in the way. He just wanted to clear everything out of the way so that the people he talked to were encountering straight and without hindrance and out barrier the gospel of Jesus' grace. That's what we need to do. We need to stay humble and flexible even when we're misunderstood. Second way that we can play defense is stay faithful in the face of hostility and lies. Now, this is going to take us uh, well into chapter 22. And what we're going to see as we move on is that, unfortunately, Paul's attempts at unity don't accomplish what he had hoped. Uh, And it's not because the Jewish believers didn't accept it. It's because there were some Jews from Asia, probably from Ephesus. And again, please notice these are not Jewish Christians. Uh, These are Jewish people. Uh, They see Paul in Jerusalem, and they make some assumptions because of what they see, and they end up lying about Paul, and they try to stir up a mob to kill him. The accusation they make is that Paul has defiled the temple by bringing a Gentile into the inner sanctuary, which wasn't true, and which was actually very ironic because Paul was actually at the temple undergoing a purification rite so that he can get into the temple himself. He wasn't doing this at all. But their lies almost cost Paul his life. Look at verses 30 to 32. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Don't miss that. Verse 33, the commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. So this is a surging mob, just Try to envision it. Verse uh, 36, the crowd that followed kept shouting, away with him. It was this ugly scene. And you have to ask, did James' plan backfire? And I think the answer is no. Paul never expected a pain-free visit to Jerusalem. It is likely that the Jewish believers still knew what Paul was trying to do, and his efforts would have encouraged unity. 
But also we know from our vantage point that this was one more link in that chain of sovereign events that God was using to get Paul where he wanted him, and that ultimately was Rome. You can write this down. We shouldn't be surprised when people are hostile and even lie about us. And it's been this way from the beginning of the Christian faith. Do you know that in the first century, uh, early Christ followers were accused of incest, cannibalism, and atheism? I am not making this up. This is historical fact. You say, what are you talking about? Well, people outside the church said because they greeted one another with a kiss that that got interpreted into you're sleeping with your sister. Um, because they took the Lord's Supper, you know, this is the body of Christ. This is the blood of Christ broken and shed for you. They were eating people. And because the early Christians would not worship the emperor, they were called atheists. Well, very few things have changed ultimately because even today we are accused as Christians of immorality. We are accused of bigotry. We are accused of hatred and intolerance because of our convictions on marriage and life based on the scriptures. People still lie. People still are hostile. And when we are falsely accused, even maybe persecuted, we should remember that Jesus The suffering servant stands with us, always there, ready to give us grace in our time of need. And we should remember that Jesus also always has the last word. Look at verse 37. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. So this commander thinks that Paul is an Egyptian terrorist, an assassin, maybe because his head is shaved at this point. But when he finds out that he is a multilingual guy, an educated guy from a major city, he gives Paul permission to speak. And in Acts 22, Paul gives what Luke calls a defense. And this comes from the Greek word uh, in verse 1. It's the Greek word apologia. We get our word apology or our word apologetics from this. And I want you to see that what Paul is about to do is neither apologetic or defensive, not in the way that we would normally uh, think of those words. Paul is going to give a sensitive and respectful and honest account of life and conversion in response to the charges that have been made against him. So don't forget something. He has almost been killed. He has been arrested. He is in chains, but he speaks calmly. And I just have to ask, like I've asked myself, how many of us think that if we had been there like this, that we might have spoken with at least a little bit of anger? Not Paul. Look at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 22. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as also the high priest and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. 
Now, as we work our way through the rest of Paul's defense, here's the principle I want you to see. You can write this down. We meet people where they are by telling the gospel through our story. We meet people where they are by telling the gospel through our story. Paul wants to connect with these people. He wants to connect with them so they will listen to his message. And he does this first of all, and it's just, it's just amazing and spectacular how he does this, by sharing his loyalty to their common Jewish heritage with them. He wants them to understand, my story is like your story. That's part of this defense. Because Paul honestly did not see following Jesus as a rejection of Judaism, but as a fulfillment of it. He believed Jesus was the Jewish Messiah promised by the Jewish prophets. And so to meet these Jewish people where they were, Paul does a number of things. He speaks in Aramaic. That's their everyday language. He he addresses the crowd as brothers and fathers. He reminds them he was raised in Jerusalem, that he was educated under Gamaliel. Later on in his defense, he's going to refer to Ananias' devotion to the law and his good reputation among Jewish people. Paul's going to call God the God of our fathers. He's going to tell them that when he had his vision of his calling, he himself was worshiping in the temple. Over and over again, Paul is stressing, I am a Jewish man. I respect Judaism. I respect our heritage. And it's out of this, as he is meeting them where they are, that he tells them the facts about his conversion. He wants to be clear to them that his life and his ministry were not the result of something he just imagined and these wild ideas he had. In fact, it is so obvious, Paul was not interested in following Jesus. Paul was actually doing the very opposite. Maybe some of you have never thought about this, but not everybody who becomes a Christian is looking to become a Christian. Sometimes God knocks you off of your you-know-what onto your you-know-what like he did Paul. Right? Paul was simply going to tell them that my conversion is just the result of the sovereign grace and power of God. Now, I want to walk you briefly through Paul's story. And as we do this, we're going to see three things that Paul does that we can do as we tell our story. They're very simple. Uh, The first one is you share who you were before Jesus. In other words, how has Jesus changed your life? As Paul is identifying with this crowd, he reflects on his former life. He was a Jew born in Tarsus. He was a Pharisee educated under Gamaliel. He was so devoted to the uh, Jewish faith that he was violently persecuting Christians to their death. He wanted to destroy Christianity. And everyone who was in leadership in Jerusalem knew that was true. And he was on a long journey to the city of Damascus to do that to persecute Jesus' followers when his life was changed forever. Now, here's the point for us today. We should be able, every one of us who knows Jesus, to succinctly share with someone about our life before we met Jesus. It's going to be a different story for every single one of us. It doesn't need to be a story as sometimes people think that should glorify our sins. For example, I became a Christian when I was nine, okay? I hadn't done too many wild things, horrible crimes at that age. (laughs) And there are a number of you, that's your story too. That's okay. That's actually pretty good. Some of you actually are sitting there right now saying, I wish that I had come to know Jesus at nine. 
before I did all that other stuff, right? And, and so we just tell people uh, what it was like for us, just reality, what we may have been searching for in our lives and how we came to realize that our way was not a good way. Our way was not going to lead us into life, but it was going to lead us into death. We just tell the story, whatever that story is for you. The second thing, we, we share how Jesus met us. So you share how Jesus met you. Paul tells how that happened to him in verses 6 through 8. He says, about noon as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Paul met the living Christ, and that changed everything. This light that blinded Paul was brighter than the noonday sun. Notice Paul says it was Jesus of Nazareth who, who confronted him. He's making one more connection with his audience. You know, Paul in this moment has what we kind of consider the classic conversion story. In fact, we have a phrase for this story. You probably have heard it before. We call a story like this a Damascus Road experience. And, and again, uh, some people get kind of twisted up here because they don't think their story is that good. Your story is not that dramatic. I've already shared with you, mine isn't that dramatic. But I want to tell you today, will you please listen to what I'm about to say? If you have a story of Jesus saving you, it's good. Amen. It's good. I don't care when you got saved. <laughs> I don't care what you had done or what you hadn't done before you got saved. If Jesus... If Jesus opened your eyes and took you from death to life and washed you clean and set you free, that's a good story. Amen. It's your story, and you shouldn't be envious of someone else's story. You should thank God for your story. And you should let God speak through you telling your story. God will use your story. By the way, God doesn't need anybody's story to save anybody. Do you understand that? Like, nobody told Paul a story, okay? That's not how Paul was saved. <laughs> I mean, again, like I said, uh, Jesus knocked Paul off of something onto something. And that's how Paul got saved. So... We have a story. Whatever it is, rejoice in it. Share it. Let the power of God come through your story. Tell your story, and it's good. Share what God has done for you. Amen? Amen. Here's the third thing. Share what Jesus has called you to do. In verses 9 through 13, Paul tells how he obediently went to Damascus, how he had his sight restored. Uh, he, again, is connecting with his audience. You can see that there by telling him how devoted to the law Ananias was. In verses 14 to 16, Paul recounts the, uh, the message Ananias gave him from God. Then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. 
And again, I have to keep saying this to you. Paul wasn't seeking this. He was on his way to arrest Christians when God arrested him. God forgave his sins. God made Paul his servant. I mean, just think about this. Paul would confess that he was a murderer. That means he deserved death for his sins. But Jesus did not execute Paul on the Damascus road. Jesus instead turned the terrorist into an evangelist by his grace. Now, Paul's calling from God uh, was to give witness to all people about what he had seen and heard. Do you understand that is your calling too? Your job is just to tell people what God has done for you, how he forgave your sins by his grace through Jesus' death on the cross, how he has given you a new life now, how he has set you free now, how you have hope for the future, for life forever after death. Paul needed to receive baptism as a sign of cleansing from sin. And I just want to pause right here and say, there are some of you here right now, I am confident, and you need to do that too. You have trusted in Jesus Christ, but you have not followed through in obedience to his command to be baptized as a believer by immersion, as the scriptures teach. You need to obey Jesus. You need to do what he's called you to do. It is part of your discipleship with him. We're going to baptize in four weeks. If you have questions, you need to talk to me or one of our pastors so we can help you with that. Now, verses 17 to 21, uh, Paul tells them uh, how God commissioned him specifically as an apostle to the Gentiles, and that sets the crowd off again. Uh, They go, according to the Greek, they go nuts, okay? It's there in the Greek text. You can just look it up, and we're going to get to that one in a minute. But before we move to Paul's second defense, uh, I want to make sure that you don't miss something important that's going on here. We've just been reading through Paul's calm and courageous defense to this murderous mob. And you kind of marvel at how wisely and how, how, how graciously he speaks and makes his defense. And in doing that, it's probably very easy for us to forget what was happening, what this actually looked like. I'm about to tell you. You remember when I said and we read that they were beating Paul, that a mob was beating Paul? Does anyone here think that if a mob of people get at least a minute to beat on you, that they're not going to do some serious damage? And I'm sure it was longer than that. People punching, kicking, doing all kinds of stuff to Paul. Here's what I want to propose to you. Luke doesn't tell us. We don't know for sure. But I cannot imagine that Paul was standing talking to this murderous mob of people who were silent for a few moments, and he did not have blood on his face and blood on his clothes. I'm kind of imagining that he was looking at them through one eye because the other eye was swollen shut. It's easy to imagine that some ribs of his were cracked. We could just go on and on. Do you understand that Paul gives those words out of the context of the terror of a bunch of people trying to kill him? We need to feel the weight of that. It is incredible. And it's out of that that I want to challenge you. Paul was commissioned to tell, and he did it in that context. My question for you right now is, who has God called you to tell? Who do you want to tell, but you're afraid? 
Who who do you want to tell, but you're not sure you know how or you're afraid they're going to ask you some questions, you won't have the answers? I want to tell you this morning, the same God who gave Paul the grace and the strength to give this defense in that context, he will give you what you need to tell anyone he's called you to speak to. I want to ask you right now to do some application, okay? Because it's easy for us just to agree with that. I want to ask you, did God bring anyone to your mind while I was asking you if there's anyone he wanted you to tell? Did any names pop into your mind? Did any faces just kind of emerge in front of you? I want to challenge you right now in obedience to the word of God to write a name down of someone that God might be asking you to share the love and grace of Jesus with. And I want to encourage you to start praying. Start asking God to open doors. Start looking for opportunities to tell them. It may happen this week. It may take longer than that. It doesn't matter. Will you start? Will you seek to obey? God has given you a mission just like he gave Paul a mission to do. Now, with the reference that Paul makes to the Gentiles in verse 21, the mob erupts. Verse 22. And it's kind of ironic. Paul doesn't get to deal with the charges of defiling the temple. He's got to move on. And so we see um, in the next case the third way we can play defense. Go ahead and write this down. We, we stay the course, never forgetting that Jesus is always with you. Now, I just want to tell you ahead of time, this, this rest of this passage from Acts 22 into Acts 23 is a very encouraging passage if we can put ourselves in Paul's shoes, because it's very easy for us. He's such an incredible man. We distance ourselves from him. He's the mighty apostle Paul. I could never be like that. But we see here in these words that we're about to read, Paul's humanity and Paul's weakness, Paul's ordinariness. We're even going to see Paul regretting something he did. So he's not a sinless apostle. He's a man with feet of clay, just like us. It's kind of interesting Pretty close to this time, Paul wrote the letter of 2 Corinthians. And this is a book about about God's strength through our human weakness. Very familiar passage, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 9. Paul says, but we have this treasure, that's the gospel, in jars of clay, that's us. Ordinary, fragile, breakable people. To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not for us. We are hard-pressed on every side. Is that Paul in Acts 22? Yes, but not crushed. Perplexed, that's Paul right here, uh, but not in despair. Persecuted, isn't that Paul? Yes, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. And that is the beauty of this passage. We're going to see in incredible ways the all-sufficient grace of Jesus. The same Jesus that stood for Paul on the cross is standing by Paul in his trials. Do you understand he does that for you as well? The same Jesus who stood for Paul and with Paul as he was presenting the gospel to the authorities. He's going to stand for you. He's going to stand with you. As you tell people about Jesus, sometimes people who may be hostile, not receptive to the message, Jesus is always with you. See, this text is just showing us where do we find strength. It's answering the question, how does God use ordinary people like us? Look at verses 22 to 24. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. 
As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. I mean, Paul delivers a speech and they want to kill him. You've probably heard a speaker say before, that's a tough crowd. Sometimes sometimes I go home after the third service. Dana says, how's it go? And I say, ah, oh, that was a tough crowd. But so far, so far, no one has told me, Pastor Mike, you're not fit to live. Uh, so far. Now, why was Paul on trial? He doesn't even get to address this accusation that he was defiling the temple. He's just trying to do what God has called him to do. He's just trying to go to the temple to make an offering and and connect with Jewish consciences and bring unity. And then these non-Christian Jews go nuts and start a riot and accuse Paul of defiling the temple. Paul gives his defense speech and doesn't even get to that issue when he just says, God sends me to the Gentiles, the mob goes off. He's not fit to live. And, And in verse 23, you'll see they display their hostility, visible signs of protest. They're throwing their cloaks and flinging dust into the air like they just don't care. Um, (laughs) Reminds me of a baseball manager that comes out to protest an ump's call, and he's kicking dirt on the umpire. You know, it's not going to do anything. It's just this charade. You're just letting everybody know you're not happy. And we find this guy. He's got to be frustrated. Roman commander, he doesn't know what's going on. He takes Paul into the barracks. He's going to flog him just to find out what's happening. And so that's just what's happening here. There's rage by the Jews. There's confusion by the Romans. And now we're going to see in this second defense, Paul responds in three ways. And I heard someone explain it in a way that I think will help you remember it. So I'm going to share it with you. Uh, They said that Paul responds by playing rock, paper, scissors. So let me explain what I mean. We're going to start actually with paper. Okay. So His first response, Paul is being stretched out to be flogged. And verse 25 says, As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? Well, it wasn't. And Paul knew it. And so did all the soldiers. And that kind of gets everybody scared. The commander comes to Paul in verse 28 and says, I bought my citizenship, which actually means he bribed somebody because they did not sell citizenship like you could, you know, buy TSA pre-check for $85. It was corruption. But Paul was a citizen by birth. You say, how? Well, we don't know. Best guess is the Romans gave citizenship to people as a reward for service rendered to Rome. And most likely that Paul's family, as a tent makers, leather workers, they had somehow served the Roman military and had been rewarded. And this had gotten passed down Uh, to Paul. Now, if you've been reading Acts carefully, you probably have noticed that Paul's Roman citizenship comes in handy uh, throughout the book of Acts. He's protected sometimes because of his Roman citizenship. So here we see Paul responds with paper. He he plays the citizenship card and and he doesn't get flogged. And we know that he's not afraid to suffer for the name of Jesus when it was necessary. But this time it isn't, so this time he doesn't. Second reaction is rock. Uh, What Paul does when he rebukes the high priest, he he throws a rock. So he's just beaten a flogging with paper. Now he's going to use rock. And what happens in verse 30 is he gets taken before the Sanhedrin. This is the Jewish leadership council, about 70 people made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. Paul's a former Pharisee. He's going to make his defense. And 
He's not, again, going to get very far. Verse 1, chapter 23, Paul looks straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Now, I want you to pause there a moment before we go on. We've been seeing throughout Acts that we must defend the gospel. And here we see that to defend the gospel, it demands that we live a holy life. Paul wasn't just good at arguing and debating. Paul lived a holy life. And it raises the question, how do you get a good conscience? Hebrews says, Hebrews 10, you get a good conscience by coming to Jesus. Jesus cleanses your heart. And think about this. It is a wonderful thing for Paul to be able to say, Paul, a former murderer, I have a good conscience. How do you say that? Well, Jesus had made him a new person, forgiven his sins, given him a new heart. What will you do with the guilt and the shame you feel? Lots of different ways to respond to that. Some people um, in some parts of the world make holy pilgrimages to supposedly holy places. In some Eastern religions, some people beat themselves in an effort to get rid of their guilt and shame. All around the world, in all kinds of cultures, sometimes people take their own lives. And that's the power of guilt and shame. But we have a better option. You go to Jesus and you give him your guilt and shame. See, that's what is offered us in the gospel. And only Christianity offers that. Only Christianity can allow a murderer to say, I have a clean conscience because Jesus has cleansed me from my guilt. Jesus came to Paul and changed him. And so Paul could one time say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, it's up to us to maintain a a clean conscience. We don't do this to earn salvation. We do this to live a holy life, to maintain fellowship with God. There's just this ongoing work of repentance in taking place in our hearts. When we sin, we confess and repent. When things are wrong with other people, we seek to reconcile. And and next Sunday, uh, you're going to see Acts 24. Paul's going to refer to this again. And he's going to say in verse 16, so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Do you strive? Do you take it seriously? In 1 Corinthians 4.4, Paul says, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am judged by God. He's just saying, I I don't know of anything in my life right now. I know I'm not perfect, but God's the one who judges. And as far as I know, I have a good conscience. This doesn't mean you're sinless. It just means we're living in ongoing repentance. And Paul, we're going to see, is about to model that for us. Now, you would think his statement in verse 1 was not that controversial. Uh, But in verse 2, the high priest says, smack him. (laughs) At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. And, you know, really, what did Paul say to warrant that? I mean, he doesn't say anything about Ananias' mom, you know. I mean, well, the high priest is just showing he thinks Paul is a wicked person. He's just showing that he... He's just really showing his own true colors. The historian uh, Josephus says that this high priest was an awful person. He was brutal and greedy. We see here he's presiding over the court in an unrighteous way, not following the scriptures. Paul knows that. Paul reacts. I mean, how would you react? Verse 3, then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. 
You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. That's a great verse, you know. Put that on a coffee mug, you know. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. That would be awesome. Paul's just pointing out the obvious hypocrisy here. And uh, some people debate whether he did the right thing or the wrong thing. I'm not going to resolve that. We're not really sure. You can read the commentators if you want to get some ideas about that. But it's clear that Paul has some regret. He kind of walks things back. And whatever's going on here, whether he did the right thing or he didn't, we are seeing that, that Paul is a man like us. We can sympathize with him. I mean, what did you do the last time somebody smacked you in the face? How did you react? Uh, When you go through all the trials that Paul did, it's hard to respond the right way all the time. Well, here's his third response. This one is scissors. And, And Paul is about to divide the Sadducees and Pharisees with a comment he makes about the resurrection. Now, again, the Uh, There's debate about what he was doing, why he was doing it, and how he was doing it. Some people think he did it on purpose so they would get distracted and start fighting among themselves and forget about him. Uh, I think that wasn't his purpose. I think Paul probably knew what might happen, but I think the main reason he brought up the resurrection was this. The resurrection was the point. The resurrection really was the reason that he was there. You know, the surface issue was this lie about him defiling the temple, but the real issue was the empty tomb. Would the Jewish people accept the historical reality that Jesus was alive? See, Paul is just going to argue throughout all of his defenses that he is simply a consistent Jew, that, that Judaism rightly understood culminates in a belief in Jesus, risen from the dead. Paul is just saying to them, you guys have categories for the resurrection. I'm not crazy. I'm just being faithful to what happened. In verses 6 through 8, chapter 23, he's saying, this is why I'm on trial. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. See, it really is the resurrection on trial, not Paul. And Jesus commends him, as we're going to see in verse 11, that he has testified uh, about Jesus. But of course, once again, they go nuts. Why? Well, one group believes in the resurrection, one does not. Verse 7, when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and that is why uh, you've heard me say they were so sad, you see. (laughs) They believe that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So they just get into this fight. I mean, it it is a knockdown drag out. Can you see? It's like 70 pastors You know, I mean, that's the only thing I can think of to imagine this. Start getting in a brawl. It would have been awesome uh, to see that. Um, They hate each other. You can just see it just breaks out. It's just so violent, so crazy. Verse 10, that the commander has to come in again and rescue Paul again from another mob. And what we see here is the sovereignty of God. God is using all kinds of things to accomplish his purposes. He's using right here a commander, a Roman commander who's so confused. What are these crazy people doing? He's using all these other events because God wants to take Paul to Rome, the capital of the empire, 
and he's preserving Paul's life. And he preserves our lives, too, until he's finished with us. Do you know that? You know, the resurrection still divides. It is always the issue. Uh, Paul writes in Corinthians, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then our preaching is in vain. Our hope, our faith is in vain. At Southwinds, we believe in the resurrection of Jesus bodily from the dead. Jesus is alive. It is a huge deal. Everything in our faith and in our lives depends on this. Sometimes people say, well, I just can't believe in the resurrection. People don't rise from the dead. Exactly. That's why it's a big deal. Okay? So this is Paul's reaction as he defends a second time. And out of this, as we close this, we find some reassurances. They're in the last verse, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And I just have to say, what a sweet verse. I don't want to speculate too much, but just try to imagine what must have been going on in Paul's head. He's journeyed all the way to Jerusalem to give a gift as an expression of love. He's met by an unwelcoming church, some people suspicious of him. He's attacked by Jews, almost killed by a mob. He gives a defense as he's bloodied and beaten, and everyone wants to kill him again. He's barely spared from that because of the Roman citizenship that he has. He gets smacked by the high priest, and then he gets caught up once again in a fight with a bunch of preachers who can't get along. He's almost killed again. He has to be rescued again. I don't know what's going on in his head by the time we get to verse 11. Luke says it was the following night, so that means he had a full day in the barracks to think about everything. And as we read this verse, we have to conclude, because Jesus comes to encourage him, that he was probably discouraged, right? Perplexed exhausted, maybe regretful. Maybe he didn't think he did the right thing talking back to the high priest. But here's the good news. We get discouraged too, and Jesus comes to us. Jesus strengthens us. This is the all-sufficient grace of Jesus coming to strengthen his wounded soldier. God uses discouraged people. And I'm pretty confident that some of you came here to hear those four words today. That's why you're here. God uses discouraged people. See, all through Acts, we see Jesus coming and strengthening Paul, and he does it again here. And I want you to see Jesus gives Paul some promises, and they're promises for us too. Four things really quickly. Uh, Number one, the Lord knows us. It says, The Lord stood near Paul. He knows where Paul is, what's going on in Paul's life. And I'm here to tell you today, he knows where you are. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows our condition. He's the good shepherd who knows his sheep. So take courage, be comforted. Second, the Lord is with us. I want to tell you something. If you are here today and you don't know the Lord, you're maybe checking Christianity out, wondering what it is that we believe. If you have heard from somebody who says they're a Christian, they've told you, look, if you'll just come to Jesus and you trust him, then all your problems will go away. I have to tell you this morning, they lied to you. (laughs) The Bible never promises that. I mean, how many of us know today that's true? Amen? 
But here's what we do get. We do get Jesus as our best friend in our trials. He never promises life will be easy. He always promises that he will be with us, that he will never leave or forsake us. He stands with us. Number three, the Lord is for us. Just look how Jesus encourages Paul. It's kind of like a coach cheering him on. He first of all gives him his exhortation, take courage. But then he gives him a commendation. He, he, he says, you're doing a good job. And this is just good coaching, you know, exhort, but commend. And Paul has just been beaten up so much. At what point is he just going to give out? That's why Jesus says, you've testified about me. He's saying to Paul, good job, Paul. In other words, Paul gets a well done before he gets the well done. And then fourth, the Lord isn't finished with us. Jesus tells Paul, you know, Jerusalem is one thing, but Paul, we're going to Rome. I told you. I mean, Paul may have been wondering at this point, are we ever going to get there? And Jesus is saying to him, Paul, I'm not finished with you. Someone has rightly said, we are immortal until the Lord is finished with us. We have breath. We have purpose. Our times are in his hands. We have a great commission to fulfill. And regardless of our age or our background, the Lord is not finished with us yet. I just want to check before I leave today. How many of you here are breathing right now? Would you please let me know, okay? If you're breathing, God has a purpose for you still. He's not finished with you yet. Now, next week, we're going to see Paul's defenses continue. But this week, between now and next Sunday, we're going to face some challenges. We're going to face some trials, maybe some serious, others maybe not so much. As we do, will you be reassured that the Jesus who stood for us at the cross, who has stood with us every day of our lives. He will stand with us this week, whatever we face, because he has promised to us, to you, I will never leave you or forsake you. So be encouraged, be comforted, be strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. Would you bow your heads? Father God, as we pray before you, we give you thanks for your word, which challenges us, your word which comforts us, and Lord, we just pray uh, that you would speak specifically to our hearts about the, the specific ways you want us to obey your word in our lives. Lord, I want to pray especially uh, for the names that people all across this room wrote down, names that they're going to be praying about, how they can share Jesus' love and grace. Names are going to be asking you to open doors. I pray, Lord, that you would open doors. Lord, I pray that you would give them wisdom in the moment to say what you would have them to say. And Lord, I also want to pray for any of us who didn't write a name down. We know, we know you, but there's no one on our hearts there's no one in our lives right now that we are seeking to share with. Lord, if that is us, I pray that in this moment, by your Holy Spirit, you would be, bring conviction and we would repent and you would make us clean and we would begin to do what you have called us to do. 
what our purpose in this world is to tell the good news about the marvelous light that you have shined into our lives so that others may hear and others may believe, others may know you. Lord, you have called us to this place. We are your people. We are sent by you into the world. And we ask that we would be faithful to share your goodness and your grace. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.